Good morning. Everyone is so much more awake at the 10:45 than they are at the 8. <clears throat> so this should be a lot easier. This should go a lot better for us. Uh, we're going to be in First John, continuing our series through the Book of First John. First John, chapter four, going through verses one through six today. First John, chapter four, verses one through six. And I'll read it, and then we will pray and jump into the sermon. First John chapter 4 reads like this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world... By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, bowing the knees of our hearts before you, offering all of ourselves, confessing that, Lord, you are all that our hearts want to live for. Those who are among the redeemed here this morning, who have tasted and seen that you are good, who have tasted and seen that joy in your presence far surpasses any joy found elsewhere. You are the very source of life. And Lord, we pray that you would help all of us be able to sing in unison and say in truth that you are our God, that Jesus, you are our life, you are our everything, that of all other things that that keep us from pursuing you wholeheartedly, that keep us from chasing after you, from drawing nearer, that you would strip those things away from us, that you and your wisdom would only give good to us. And good is specifically defined by what brings us to you. So Lord, I pray that you would use this time. Be with us. Keep, Keep me from error. Let us all just behold Christ's glory more clearly this morning. It's in His holy and majestic name we pray. Amen. So you can see from reading the text that John is dealing with what people believe this morning and how to evaluate whether what you believe is actually true or not. And so in preparing for uh, the sermon this week, I was just thinking, what are some of the craziest things that people have believed? 
from innocent things that people believe when they're a kid that is just way out there to the more extreme end of the spectrum where people believe things that ultimately have fatal consequences. And so I was looking at a, a, a list of some of the craziest things that people believe when they were kids that graciously they wised up and uh, no longer believe. One person said, I thought, when I was a child, I thought women got pregnant by overeating. I told my mom to eat more so that I could have a little brother. Another person said, I was definitely convinced that some sort of creature would come out of the toilet when I flushed it. I would always wash my hands first, flush, and then run out of the bathroom. Another person said, I used to think that characters that die in movies actually get killed in real life. This led me to the only reasonable conclusion that they are all criminals given a last chance to leave their mark on the world. Now, some of these beliefs are, are innocent enough on this end of the spectrum, but I was also looking up to some of the craziest things that people have believed on the more extreme end of the spectrum. And I was reading a story of a cult that rose up in Uganda back in 1980. And in 1980, there was a Ugandan man named uh, Paulo Kashaku and his daughter, Credonia Merende. And these two founded a movement called the, Mo the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. These two, this father and, and daughter duo, had claimed to have been inspired by God, to have seen visions of the Lord, and they were able to persuade a large group of the Ugandan people to follow them, to listen to them. And the group so feared damnation, so feared accidentally breaking the ninth commandment, which is not to bear wit false witness or to lie, that they barely spoke to one another and only used sign language on most days. Sex was forbidden, soap was forbidden for some reason, and only one meal was consumed by them on Mondays and on Fridays. This doomsday cult had, had believed that January 1st of 2000 was doomsday, was the, the end of this age. And so when that day came and went, when the new millennia came and went, and nothing happened, some of their followers began to be discouraged, began to be dissuaded, and moved away from the cult. So these leaders started to become anxious, and they established a new doomsday date at March 17th of 2000. And on that day, a whole group of followers, some 500 of their followers, all gathered into their church, their local meeting place. And soon after all the people were gathered, the building actually exploded, and everyone inside died. At first, people were thinking that maybe it was just a mass suicide, just one of those, again, extreme views that were commonly held by all the people. But later evidence revealed that these people had actually been poisoned, had actually been strangled, and that these leaders, in their anger, in their frustration for their people, had actually genocide. Had genocide. They murdered all of these followers. Both of these extremes point out the fact that what you believe ultimately leads to some type of action that you take. What you believe directly influences your actions. And John would, would have us know today that 
specifically what you believe about Jesus Christ, tends towards the latter end of this spectrum. It is the most important thing that you need to be clear on in this world. What you believe about Jesus Christ, what He has done for you. And so let me give a little bit of the background of this text. Uh, last week, Travis was walking us through chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. And there, John was telling us two things that believers can be certain of. He says first that believers can know that they have passed from death to life and that they have union with God when they show Christ-like love for fellow believers. That's replete throughout the book, but particularly in chapter 3. He says in verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And secondly, he tells them, that they may also know that God dwells in them because of the Spirit that He, God, gave them. Verse 24, he says, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. So inevitably, a, a question arises that if he says that we can know that He abides in us by the Spirit who indwells in us, inevitably, people are going to arise and have arisen who have claimed to have an experience with the Spirit of God and yet have spoken falsely. So many people have arisen claiming to have had an encounter with the Spirit of God, and yet, like our example of the Ugandan cult leader, have led people astray. And so this section is meant to give us a a test by which we can examine the things that we hear, the things that we are being taught, and examine whether or not they are truly from God, or whether or not even the most subtle of errors can lead us astray, and ultimately cause our love to diminish and cause us to drift away from the Lord. So we're titling this sermon, What Do You Believe and Why Do You Believe It? Testing truth. What do you believe and why do you believe it? And John breaks his argument down into two things. He breaks the test down into two components. Number one, the content of the teaching. Testing the content of the teaching, verses 1 through 3. And second, the character of the audience, verses 4 through 6. The character of the audience. So let's start with the text. Verse 1. Beloved... Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, a few weeks ago, in chapter, when we were in chapter 2, we point out the fact that when he says beloved, he uses the word six times in this gospel. And every time that he uses the word beloved, it's at a crucial juncture in his argument where he's saying, listen to me. Based on just the love that I have extended towards you, that I have demonstrated towards you, he's establishing credibility, trustworthiness, making sure that they understand where he is coming from and why right now they need to believe in him, to believe him. He says, Beloved, listen to me. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, it's generally a, a good uh, Bible study tool that whenever you see a command given in the Scriptures, do this or do not do this, that generally 
the opposite of that command is what's currently taking place. So when he says, do not do X, it's because right now everybody's doing X. So when he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, he's saying that because probably these people have, 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 have lost their critical eye towards the things that they're hearing, towards the things that they are letting themselves uh, believe, towards the subtle deviations in truth, which they are just including and enfolding all of them into their belief system. They've lost their critical eye. They're believing everything and testing nothing. They're letting just the toxic waste of false belief, false teaching to contaminate their minds in their hearts. And when he says, don't believe every spirit, the word spirit can be translated just wind. It's the same word that's often translated for wind. And if that were his meaning, he would mean like every wind that sort of blows by, every teaching that comes by, that uh, the latest fad, the latest philosophy, the latest belief about uh, the Son of God, you guys are just believing anything that just passes by, that blows by, that's popular one season, not popular the next. It could be that that's what he's meaning. But when you look at the whole context of this book, when you zoom out, it's clear that John has an eye towards the spiritual realm. That just like Paul, John is readily aware that though you may not believe this to be the case, or though you may not see this reality as we are describing it, There is a spiritual dimension to this world. There is a spiritual influence on the ideas, on the systems, on on the, the things that are popular in this world that are contrary to the ways of God. And so he means spirits, personal beings that are influencing the things that you are hearing. We know this because back in in 2.18, he first introduces us to this uh, figure, the Antichrist. Chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Again in verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, in one breath, he mentions the Antichrist singular. On the next breath, he mentions Antichrists, plural. And what Scripture teaches, what he's agreeing with here, is that all of human history is culminating on a time where a singular figure called the Antichrist will emerge. A figure that will be so filled with the spirit of the evil one, the spirit of Satan, that will so be guided by his will, that he will galvanize a mass amount of people and lead them away from the one true God. He is full of malice, of anger, of bitterness towards the one true God. And his sole purpose is to blot out, to, to, to blot out every single ray of, of God's glory, of his goodness, of his beauty in the world, to cause people to live in confusion, to lead them to destruction. That is the Antichrist that's coming at the end of this age. 
However, the spirit of, of Satan is already real in this world. Throughout the New Testament, it, it says that, that Satan right now is already influencing the world and is influencing false prophecy and false prophets. And so this is what he refers to as, as lowercase a, antichrists, that Satan's will is already being exerted in this world. The brokenness that you see in your neighborhoods, in your families, in your own lives, in your own hearts, that is evidence of Satan's will, his spirit, his presence in this world. That is what John has in mind here. And he's influencing Every deviation of truth, anything that he can do, he can do it in a myriad of ways, but to keep people from believing the central truths of the gospel, that's what he's doing. Verses 2 and 3 really have to do specifically with with John's context, with what was happening in his world at that time, what people were specifically being led away to believe. There were two main viewpoints that were, were deviations from the truth that people were believing in this time that we can read about, not only just from uh, the New Testament, but some of the church fathers, Christians that lived during that time, that we can read their letters that are not biblical, they're not the Bible, but they nevertheless exist and help us understand history. And they'll tell us about one view that said that basically Jesus was a normal earthly man Born of a normal birth, not the virgin birth. They said that that was just a hoax, that Jesus was a normal man, and that the Son of God, the Christ, was actually a different figure than the earthly man, Jesus. And so what they believed was that Jesus was born, a normal birth, he lived a, a normal life, a sort of relative guy, pretty upstanding guy, and that when we come to the Gospels and we see the event where Jesus is being baptized and his voice cries out from heaven that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and we see the Spirit descending upon this Jesus figure, that this view would say that that moment was the point in time where the Son of God, the Christ, descended upon the earthly man, Jesus, and was with him throughout his earthly ministry, empowering him to do miracles, to raise from the dead, to say all types of incredible, uh, deep truths. And yet, right before Jesus suffered, that Son of God left him, the Christ left him. And so they say that 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 explains why... Say, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is sweating great drops of blood and he's fearful, whereas when you look at his, his ministry and he seems confident, he boldly approaches his, his critics, his enemies. There seems to be a, a shift there. And when he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This view would say that it's because the Son of God, the Christ, actually left the man Jesus before he suffered. That was one of the things that people were being led away to believe at this time. Another slightly different view was just that Jesus and the Son of God, Jesus was truly the Son of God, just one person that came into this world, and yet he never was really a man. They say he only sort of looked like a man. He was mainly just a spiritual being. He looked as if he were hungry. He looked as if he were thirsty, but he wasn't. He looked as if he suffered on the cross and experienced pain, etc., but he didn't. He looked as if he died in your place, etc., but he did not. He looked as if he ascended from the grave, but he did not. He was not actually dead. 
These are the things that people are, are being led to believe away from the truth that John is addressing in verses 2 and 3. When he tells them, Beloved, by this you know the Spirit of God. This is how you know who is teaching you is the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What's being emphasized is that Jesus Christ is Flesh. He did come in the flesh. He wasn't like that second view that said he was sort of just a spiritual being, but never, never really a man. John is saying that's not true. Anything that's teaching you that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh is not of God. Secondly, in verse 3, he says, In every spirit that does not confess Jesus, he doesn't mention the Christ, he just says Jesus is not from God. What he's pointing out there is those who would say, yeah, I believe in the Son of God, but that figure is different than Jesus. Jesus was just an ordinary man that we can sort of not pay attention to. It's really the Christ figure that we adore and worship. And John is saying, no, you confess Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. It's one figure who came into the world to suffer in your place. Now, you may be asking, what is the point Aren't these just subtle differences? Like, do we really need to think through theology and and stretch our minds to really understand the nuances of the faith? What's so important? Well, there's something that's central at both of these views. And really, of, of any view that deviates from the orthodox teaching of Scripture. And that is this. In both of those views... God Himself is not suffering in your place on the cross. It's packaged two different ways, but central to both of those views, God Himself is not suffering in your place. He didn't really bear your sin. He didn't really die in your stead. Whether He descended upon Jesus and then left before Jesus suffered, God didn't suffer in your place. Whether He came in His life and only appeared to experience pain and affliction on the cross in your place if that was only a facade then God didn't suffer in your place and you can hear sort of in the background Jesus' encounter with Peter when Peter came up to Jesus one time when Jesus said Peter I am going to be the son of man is going to be crucified and killed and three days later he will be raised again when Peter said Lord there's no way that this thing could happen to you and Jesus responded to him Depart from me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God. In a myriad of ways, if Satan can get people to believe something other than the God of this universe himself came down infinitely beyond you, infinitely above you, you are infinitely unworthy of him. But that God came down and suffered, experienced the limitations of the flesh for you. Suffered in your place. If Satan can get you to, to not believe that central truth, then he is one. Because understanding what God has done for you on the cross is central to everything in the Christian life. The degree to which you understand, to which you meditate on what 
Christ, the Son of God, perfect in holiness and perfection and beauty and worth, has done in your place. To that same degree, you will be empowered to love selflessly. To love with a reckless abandon. To pour your life out for the sake of others. Out of an overflow of your joy for what this God has done for you. That's precisely what one of the church fathers who was explaining what was happening during this time. To these people who were being led astray. What was happening to them. Ignatius was a... a, Church leader in the year A.D. 107, basically lived around the same time as John, uh, the author of this book himself. And he's writing about this reality of people who are losing their ability to love because they're deviating from this central truth of the Scriptures. He says, Let not office exalt anyone, for faith and love is everything, and nothing has been preferred to them. But mark those who have strange opinions concerning the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary they are to the mind of God. For love they have no care, none for the widow, none for the orphan, none for the distressed, none for the afflicted, none for the prisoner, or for him released from prison, none for the hungry or thirsty, They abstain from communion and prayer because they do not confess that the communion is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins, which the Father raised up by His goodness. These people had lost their ability to love in the way that Christ has demonstrated. This is the way in which my people are to love one another. So for ourselves... A a litmus test to how accurately you have perceived what God has done for you is, how are you loving others? When you look at Christ's example of love, demonstrated in how He poured out His life, not not just that He was kind to the disciples, but how He poured out His life for people who did not even deserve His affections. With that being the standard, are you growing in that direction? When you see areas of your life where, where you lack this, this, this love, this pursuit of others, this consideration of the needs of others more than yourself, are you convicted about that? Does the Spirit of God convict you of that? And if He does, does He point you towards the one who will always forgive your sins, who is calling you to Himself and saying, follow me, follow me, repent and follow me. John would have us know that we ought to closely evaluate the content of the things that we are believing. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and your mind. Don't grow lax in your pursuit of God and your knowledge of the scriptures, of just studying Him, of learning Him, learning Him, of tearing with Him in the scriptures. Secondly, John moves on to consider the, the, the character of the audience. 
as a second piece of this test. Considering the character of those who are being influenced by truth or by error. In verse 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, that is the false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, when I came across that, that verse this week, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, I was struck uniquely by it. Just because it is an incredible thing when you really consider the world in which we live, the ramifications of sin, the clear display of the work of, of Satan and the brokenness in our world. That John can confidently say, he who is in you is greater than this figure that is causing all of this chaos in the world. That is an incredible thing to say. Particularly, I was thinking about, uh, we as elders, we were, had our praying plan this, this week, praying for the upcoming year, planning for 2015. And one of the things we were praying for was one of our sister churches, Imago Dei, who is currently, all of their body, they are looking to purchase a new church building because they want a place where not only can they gather as a church, but particularly, similar to our vision here, they want to have a particular arm in the community to meet needs in the community. And what they want to do is to have a place where those who have been victims of sex trafficking in the United States have a place to come, have a solace, have a place where they can receive counseling, be ministered to, be rehabilitated. And I don't know how much you are aware of just that particular problem here in the U.S. It's not just a third world problem or something that's happening overseas, but how particular of a problem that it is here in the U.S. But when you really consider it, it makes it all the more striking that John can say that he who is in the world is less than he who is in you. There's a few statistics for you. So we have one website that was saying approximately 300,000 children are at risk of being prostituted in the United States. The average age of entry into a prostitution for a child victim is between the ages of 13 and 14. Victims may be forced to engage in certain activities up to 20 to 48 times a day. And this network generates about $9.5 billion a year in the U.S. alone. One particular story. I was reading of a, a girl named uh, Keisha. Either that's her real name or that's a pseudo name to protect her identity, but real story. This girl named Keisha, she was 16 years old, um, young African-American girl from the state of Florida. She was raised by her aunt until she was 10 years old. And after that point, for whatever reason, um, not revealed in the story, she was placed in the foster care system. At the age of 14, Keisha ran away from her foster family because one of her foster relatives was abusing her. So she ran away from the family. She found a man named Master D. 
was a 26-year-old man who offered to help her, to help her find her biological family. And he said that he would uh, be able to pay for some of their expenses in this journey, but that she was going to need to, to help him cover up some of the money that he needed for rent. So he told her that she needed to help support them financially by engaging in commercial sex with some of his friends. So with no other money or no other options, Keisha did so. He drove her back to Florida, but continued to exploit her and actually assaulted her, telling her that she wouldn't see her family again if she didn't listen to him. Eventually, Keisha was arrested for soliciting they, after spending some time in, in the juvenile facility, she was taken back to her foster care family where the whole situation resumed, causing her to flee again. She ran back to this figure, Master D, and was later arrested again for soliciting. Just this broken, tragic, terrible cycle. And that's just one example of some of the 300 thousand or so children in this country who experienced something similar. So just thinking about this, that this week, when, when John can say that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, you just, you have to say, really? Can you really look out at the brokenness of this world and believe this truth of Scripture? And if it weren't for the promises of God, it would be impossible to believe this. But the fact that that scriptures promise us that the day that is coming, no mind has fathomed what God will bring to those who trust in Him. His glory, His beauty, you can't even begin to imagine the glory of that day. It will be so beyond what you can fathom now. The scriptures tell us that nobody on that day, nobody regardless of what they have experienced in this life, nobody on that day will question God's goodness and His justice because of the great glory that He ushers in and offers all of those who trust Him to be enveloped in and and just grow exponentially in forever including people like Keisha. Friends, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And you may be tempted at every turn to believe contrary to that. You may live in a world that is constantly repeating and pressing an opposing message. But God is good. He is sovereign. He is on the throne. He will accomplish all that He intends to bring to pass. And He will vindicate His people, those who trust in Him. And that day of judgment, of of justice, is coming. But right now, He's he's working in His believers, in His children, subtly to, to mold them, to shape them, to bring them closer into conformity of the image of His Son, of the one of whom we must have a right understanding of, of who we are to grow into, this Christ, this Jesus. He moves on in verse 5. 
speaking of these false prophets, he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. It's amazing how he just has this blanket statement of them being from the world and the world listening to them. Like nothing, he doesn't mention anything specifically here that they're teaching. It's just John knows that basic to the world's mentality is autonomy apart from God. Anything that causes you to believe other than what the scriptures would have you to believe. Anything that gives you a sense of I don't really have a master over me. Or there's, there's some reason I can appease my conscience to say, I can live my own life. I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I don't, specifically don't need the Christ of the Scriptures. Anything that would lead you in that direction, it's ultimately from the world, he would say. That's why the world listens to them. It appeases the conscience. That soul that, that feels like, a life under the, the, the banner of God is, is one of bondage, of one of servitude, which is completely the opposite of the Scriptures. God offers freedom and peace and love and joy and satisfaction to those who have placed their trust in Him. These false prophets that have gone out from the body, who have been lured away from the church into these false teachings because they were not discerning now number themselves amongst the world. And yet in verse 6, he closes by saying, But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. When he says, whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever does not know God does not listen to us, he's not making an oversimplistic argument that just, we're right, they're wrong, therefore if you want to know if you're on God's side, just follow us and don't follow them. Like, it's not that simple. What he's referring to is, the things that I've been talking to you about throughout this letter, if you go back and read it, the things that I have challenged you with, they are so self-evidently of God that if your spirit is, is pricked by them, if your spirit is challenged by them, then you can know that, that, that your, your heart is in alignment with the God who gave them. Contrarily, if you can hear the things that I've challenged you with in the Scriptures, and yet you are unmoved, you are unconvinced, maybe evidence that you've never really seen the God of glory. When he says that, Early in chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Nobody who has, who has actually caught a glimpse of the holiness and majesty of the Almighty God could turn around and then look at their lives and say, I'm pretty good too. You know, he's, he's great, but I'm alright. You know, nobody could actually look at God and say, I don't have sin. Nobody could also look at the way in which Jesus poured his life out for the sake of his believers, the sake of his followers, and look at commands where John says, now you in turn love in the same way and be unmoved. See their lives and see the ways in which they lack this same type of love towards one another, the same type of relentless pursuit of others over self-interests. 
If God is truly at work in your heart, if the Spirit of God is dwelling within you, if the Spirit of God is teaching you, shaping you, molding you, then these things that John has talked about, not only in this passage, but throughout this book, they ought to challenge us. They ought to cause us to to cry out to the Lord for help to grow in these areas. That we want, that we long to be close to this Christ, to be like Him. And so whatever God must do to change and conform us, do it. Do it, God. He's causing all of us, calling all of us to be discerning. What are we believing? What are we allowing ourselves to be gripped by? Whether it's big beliefs about the faith or just everyday thoughts that pass through our minds. Are they truly of the Lord? When you sin and and you're you're tempted to believe that God is so angry with you that He would not want you in His presence and so you flee from Him and you you resist getting in the Word and you just drift because you, you believe that God is just angry and frustrated at you. Is that what the Scripture teaches? Or does the Scripture say, Come to Me. Come to Me relentlessly. Come to Me. You have sinned. Come to Me. Confess your sins to Me and I am faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins. Come to Me. You will find peace and life in my presence. Let us take these things to heart and apply them in our lives throughout this week. Let's pray. Father, you know that each one of us in here Our hearts are more wicked and prone to believe error, to embrace error, to to embrace those things that are not from you than we could ever imagine. In the most subtle of ways, Lord, we are lured away into dangerous places that diminish our joy that diminish our ability to to love one another and to pour ourselves out for one another and for you, that diminish our satisfaction in your presence. And Lord, we just ask that you would continue the work of drawing us nearer to yourself. Lord, ultimately, there's nothing good within us that would compel us to, to chase after you, Lord, and we need to see a greater vision of your glory, of your majesty, of your beauty, to compel us, to win us over, to convince us that you are superior by far. Lord, I pray that you would give us a taste of the age to come. Lord, when we are just prone to slipping into the monotony of everyday life in this world and we lose sight of the fact that this world is not it, but is far lesser than what is coming for those who trust in you. Lord, when we are tempted to, to, to slip into this monotony, Lord, pray that you would just break through it. Strike us afresh with your grace, with the reality of Christ's resurrection, that you have ascended and that you reign in glory now. 
where you will forever be on your throne. Help us, Lord. Help us to grow in these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.